1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Lance Percy, and we are joined by Pamela Carl-Crossley, who is Charles and Elfrida Collis Professor of History at Dartmouth College. Today we'll be talking about her recent book, Hammer and Anvil, Nomad Rulers at the Forge of the Modern World, which was published through Roman and Littlefield in 2019. Hello, Pamela.
0: Hello, how are you, Lance?
1: Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I'd like for us to start, um, first of all, if you could uh, give us a a brief biography of yourself and your career.
0: Um, uh, Yes, in relation to Chinese history, I think you mean, and uh, uh, it's a... A a kind of a desultory story. I I just, uh, when I was in high school, um, it was the last years of the war in Vietnam. Um, This was a completely different time. You won't know anything about it. And so as a consequence, when I I thought that when I went to college, I'd like to do a course on Vietnamese history, understand something about that. But the college I went to was much too small. Uh, No Vietnamese history. So I took Chinese history instead. And then in the meantime, a few other things were happening personally in the background to sort of reinforce those interests. And then it just sort of... Uh, they started up a language program, and then I was studying Chinese language. And then finally, my professor said, you know, you could go to graduate school in Chinese history, which I I didn't know anything about that. It would never have occurred to me. and But I did do it and went to Yale. And um, as, uh, Jonathan Spence was my advisor. And Well, it all worked out. Uh, So then I was in the field of Chinese history. And uh, I didn't have to stay in it. Nobody does. So I guess I would say the main thing that keeps drawing me back to Chinese history is um, the depth, the breadth, the way in which the sort of magnitude of the history – of people in China, uh, really opens up all of human history is just one of the most efficient and rewarding paths right towards American history. And then I just um, slowly, since 1992, I've also been sort of edged towards global history. And uh, partly through that, I I got sort of on this idea of Eurasian history and Chinese history as only a part of that. And that took me to this book.
1: Wonderful. Yes. uh, Originally, I'm most familiar with your work through uh, what your contributions to Chinese history. So I was very excited to see this larger global history work, Hammer and Anvil, and thinking about where kind of Chinese history fits into this larger Eurasian continent and this history of the wider Eurasian world. And uh, to introduce the book, I was wondering, uh, I looked at the dedication, first of all, the first thing you do when you open the book, and it mentions that this book has been 30 years or so in the making. I was wondering if you could describe the intellectual journey of this book over 30 years.
0: (laughs) Uh, thanks. I'll try. Um, the uh, very early on, um, it, you know, when I was really doing my work on Chinese history, um, I did get interested in the history of the Mongols or let's say the Mongol period. And my original idea was to write a book that was about the peripheral areas, um, you know, Japan, Thailand, Lithuania, and so on, and the, the effects upon them of the sort of century of threat from the mongol conquests so it was i was really intrigued by the fact that there were kind of parallel effects in terms of centralizing and the rise in status of um, the military classes and you know a, a lot of different things and uh somehow rather over time um i i began to see that well it, what's interesting here is that the experience of the peripheries looks so much like the experiences of the countries that actually were encompassed by the, by the Mongol conquests. And so at that point, I was really thinking continentally. Um, and then from there, it was just a step to realize that as much as we um, kind of uh, fixate on the drama of the Mongol conquests and what looks um, unique about them. They they weren't really unique. It's part of a series of um, events that eventually changes the whole uh, continent. So, I think it 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 kind of it had that kind of a career. Um, that is my my interest in the book had that kind of a career and. Um, I I think I'm happier with the book that I did write than the book that I was originally thinking of writing.
1: Right, yeah. And this uh, this, this this continent and this continental thinking features really, really heavily in the, the, the whole theme of the book. There's this wonderful and really eloquent uh, passage right in the introduction that really, really caught my eye uh, that contrasts this idea we have now, uh, the world kind of divided between East and West, Uh, And here you talk about the split of Eurasia into west and East would have been experienced by seafarers arriving as shockingly disparate, having landed after months of looking at featureless ocean. And I think about uh, being a sinologist today based in the UK and when we're able to, getting on a plane and arriving in China and missing out and flying over this entire landmass in between and only glancing at it through a plane window. I was wondering this, this split between east and west uh, could you explain when and how it occurred and what have we lost in that process
0: well i think one of the things that really got my attention was the fact that um you do find um on this on the the european subcontinent right of of, of this larger continent that well we just by convention call it eurasia but why i mean we could call it anything i would just call it asia really but you know, we, we can call it anything we want to. that at that western end of it, going back at least as far as the Greeks and maybe earlier, there, there is a tendency there to try to make an east-west dichotomy. It, it means different things, right? I mean, for the Greeks, it means the Persians. And for the for the medieval Latin West, it means the Greek, Parts of Europe, and and um, then coming back as it does in the sixteenth, seventeenth century, then it means all of Europe as contrasted to all of Asia. Um, so you have these kind of um, it's not a single uh, discourse that's continuing. I don't think from classical times to the present, but it's it's something that that um people at that end of the continent want to keep regenerating. And I somebody will have to explain to me exactly why there should be this kind of an obsession. But it isn't something that you find widely distributed across Eurasia. Um, uh, most societies at some point will distinguish between themselves and other people. And of course the Parts of Eurasia where you find, you know, what we think of as these great traditions emerging um, with the writing systems and hierarchical societies and so on, they often will have the kind of discourse of civilization and barbarity. Um, And that's a different kind of thing from this East-West thing. So um, I was really struck by the fact that the last time that we kind of invented this east-west dichotomy um, it was something that came a little bit after machiavelli you know, i you know i machiavelli wasn't somebody i knew a whole lot about before and i had to get you know pretty educated on this but i was very struck by the fact that machiavelli was working in this kind of eurasian context and it's sort of his right Almost at the at the at the you know twilight of this uh, period of a kind of integrated Eurasian perspective, and then that that curtain is going to fall again. That's going to divide east and west, and this is that's the kind of discursive condition that we're familiar with now in the modern period.
1: Right. Yeah. And so thinking about the Eurasian landmass. Um, I was also struck, uh, very early in the book by your avoidance in rigidly defining Eurasia or the Eurasian region, uh, by geography. And you devote two chapters, um, to sort of, uh, mapping out this, um, Eurasia, but not in kind of terrain terms, but more based on firstly mechanisms, uh, or as you call them mechanics of articulation and secondly, through ideas. Could you explain what makes Eurasia a coherent unit of historical analysis with reference to these two?
0: Yeah, thanks. It, um, you know, I, I I go a little bit in the book into this. this there's this whole sort of nineteenth uh, and early twentieth century, uh, the emergence of this um, kind of Eurasian concept and. Uh, it one of the first things that you see people, well, like Mackinder, um, uh, getting fixated on is well where's where's the perimeters of this? And if we were to put it on a map, you know, where is it? Now, that's not all there was to it. If you look at somebody like Mackinder, he's actually thinking in terms of these dynamics of the center, right, is, is critically important. But then uh, for many others, there's the, who come afterwards, they just want to know, if I put it on a map, where do I draw the lines that go around the outside? And so the great... Um, Discussion from the beginning was: Is Africa part of it? I mean, clearly there's a geographical connection, but you know, does that mean that we're talking about a continent here? Um, uh, then Africa got knocked out of it. You know, then in the um, you know in the last few decades uh, we've had this Jared Diamond um, idea, which I think, you know, is an important one of East-West axis. So in that case, everything important is going to be happening in the temperate zone on this East-West axis. And then that would somehow rather strike Africa out of it. Um, And I really, there were several things that concerned me about this. Um, Eurasia is, the value of it here for me is that, This is where um, the greatest concentrations of of humanity, right, have been. So, like seventy percent, maybe, of the entire human population has lived on on this Eurasian landmass, and indeed within the temperate zone, mostly. Um, And it is um, a kind of theater in which there has been extraordinary um, productions of technology and um, ideas shared across it. And so, so I just decided to think in terms of the really important thing about Eurasia on this east-west axis is this constant sharing, right, of of technologies. And Diamond had called it guns, germs, and steel. Okay, but there's actually much, much more. And... Um, uh, the, when you look at it closely, you realize that, well, there's areas where there's a tremendous amount of sharing um, and a long history of that, and they do tend to be towards, more or less towards the center. Um, but then there are degrees and degrees of that so that you don't really have edges. Right, you have you have these kinds of um, places that appear to be the furthest extension of something like migration um, or uh, trade and, and uh, technological exchanges and even genetic exchanges, um, but they don't. Precisely coincide with each other; they don't amount to a solid black line on a map. And so, it seemed to me that if if we just think of Eurasia as, in fact, this collection of dynamics, um, we still get a center. We still have this concentration of of this you know incredible mass of human population, human experience, um, human societies, um, but. It, the the edges of it are really not very clear to me. It very definitely does include North Africa. I would never take North Africa out. Um, on the other hand, um, all of Africa might not really uh, be in it. I think the the east coast of Africa, probably also pretty clearly in a later period is part of it, but not necessarily all of Africa. Australia, you know, there could be the teeniest part of Australia, but most of Australia, no. Um, The Americas, um, not really, uh, not until, um, you know, the late late 15th, early 16th century. So um, I, I think the value of it is, on the one hand, you can look at an in a uh, what is this in a, in an integrated way at um, the dynamics of sharing across these certain societies, empires, and so on uh, across the temperate zone of Eurasia. On the other hand, thinking you know linking this back to global history. I think that it allows us to make a better and, in fact, a more honest distinction between um, Eurasian history on the one hand and then histories of the New World, histories of the Southern Hemisphere and so on. Um, A lot of times you find that when people tell you they're doing global history, they're actually doing Eurasian history. Um, And I think uh, making people more aware of that and getting them to understand there are these alternative historical dynamics that have to be looked at really closely in order to really be doing global history, I think it kind of clarifies those uh, considerations a bit. If you're clear about Eurasia, then you're clear about how global history is actually uh, what the components of it are.
1: Right. And something else I noticed with a lot of people who uh, engage in global history or even the history of kind of large regions is there's often a focus on exchange, certainly, but it's very, very material. And I was really struck by uh, what I found to be quite a novel chapter, the light mindedness chapter, where you kind of talk about not only the sort of exchange of ideas, but a sort of a connection between certain ideas or frameworks of thinking that, that can link parts of eurasia i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that
0: yes well that you know that's one of um that touches on some of my earliest um attractions to doing central asian history i mean if you if you look at the historiography of this there are these 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 really fascinating uh, little threads developed that are always winding themselves around uh, things like uh, Zoroastrianism and Manichaeanism and and um, far flung uh, influences of one mode of thinking on another area. And in Central Asian history, it's always this idea that Central Asia is a place where these these ideas are moving across. I didn't see it entirely that way, but but it's a way. It was a way of talking about how critical Central Asia is. But over the years, right, as I actually come to understand more about these ideologies, um, I was really struck by by the ways in which th- there there is this kind of echoing and redounding effect uh, from the center out and that it's very easy to find in societies of Eurasia easier to find it than to not find it let's put it that way but i also thought that there is um there's there is something special about central asia in that there's there are um there are dynamics that tend to uh, preserve older ideologies, and in fact, allow them to uh, resurface in such a way that they reshape later ideologies. So that you would find this constant sort of um, resurfacing of uh, these these light themes, themes about light, and and themes about the. Um, Deceptiveness of uh, of material experience and so on, and uh, what I found was that if you if you look at modernity as not starting in England or the Netherlands or France, um, but really being far to the east of there, that you see that in fact it's it's a recurrence of these. Uh, influences that lie behind modern skepticism, scientific thinking, um, political dissidence, um, and that the key to this is to understand places like um, Prague and their influence over the Germanic uh, academic world of the, you know, we're talking about the 16th century here, 17th. Um, So, it was the the fact that this is not merely an antiquarian interest, right? So if we are thinking about these very old ideologies of light and dark, and um, this this idea of uh, of uh, ma- material existence somehow being false an illusion, um, that. It's actually a continuous sort of thread that feeds into some of the uh, features of modern thought that we think are most distinctively modern. Um, Actually, you can find their roots in this kind of thinking.
1: Right. And I like how you weave these uh, intellectual and ideological trends in these different parts of the Eurasian continent throughout the whole book and uh, the, the actual temporal scope I should say to listeners for this book is is quite substantial it's uh, it's well over a millennia of time and um millennium sorry of time and uh I'd like to move on to talk about uh, the second part of the book uh, it's a four-part book I should say uh where you talk about the uh, medieval kind of the the Eurasian landmass before the arrival of the Mongol conquests, which is sort of quite an epochal defining moment in uh, the history of Eurasia. So before then we had this idea of step power and uh, you talk about these two models of rulership that that are both informed by ideological beliefs about um, how belief and power should interact. You, on the one hand, you, uh, talk about the confessional state and on the other you talk about a Turkic or a Karnal, that's spelled K-H-A-N-A-L uh, after Khan. Um, these two models, I was wondering if you could um, elucidate on what the difference between these two were and how they interacted.
0: Well, um, it's exactly that interaction that I thought is is what is, it's, it's, It's that that took me back before the Mongols, right? So a lot of times when people talk about the impact of uh, steppe uh, political influences or cultural influences on the so-called settled zones, right, at the east end of Eurasia, that um, they talk about the Mongols. um, And I, I found that actually... The Turkic perspective was more helpful to me. First of all, it includes the Ottomans. If, if we're going, let, well, let's go in chronological order. So that um, it would take us back um, maybe to the xiongnu right? The Xiongnu mm-hmm. and the Chinese uh, um, uh, hostilities, um, which in fact became sharper after the introduction of this very novel political form in China of the emperorship. Um, and then after that, you have this very this more clear dichotomy because China before the emperorship was actually organized pretty much the way the societies were all across Eurasia. Um, and uh, the conal form uh, does preserve a lot of those features but you know you can find this form of organization in ancient Iran ancient Ireland ancient China you know everywhere so it's the idea of of uh, to what extent um, the uh, the rule of an individual really depends upon the overt consent of a very powerful group here on earth and um, then there is this sort of interior side to this in which heaven is is approving of the ruler but you know through these manifestations of um, a lot of them connected to conquest and so on um, and in this kind of a of a a political environment from an early stage and you can sort of see the way in which this develops through um the you know the raren are in the avars are very important and then finally we get up to the tongue and so on and um this idea that um the ruler in this case um, because of the shamanic uh, traditions, uh, the ruler has kind of a secret religion that um, you obviously wouldn't try to impose upon other people. It has to do with the lineage and the lineage spirits and the communication of the ruler through the shaman with the spirits and so I mean, it's not It's not Performative, particularly, and um, it isn't something that's going to be the basis of proselytizing. Um, But as these orders, you know, beginning in the third century mostly, and then moving into uh, these areas, these settled areas where there are um, these formal, institutionalized, hierarchical religions, um, what you have to do in the Connell style is to accommodate those, um, to permit uh, the populations to practice their religions, to acknowledge um, their hierarchs, and if possible, co-opt them into the political enterprise. And yet, you're not sort of bringing them in to the true religion of the ruler himself. So there is, I mean, there is in practice a kind of division between the state and religion. Now, the the, the relation to the confessional empires, um, this confessional, you know, I found um, in thinking over this book and doing the research that a lot of Um, past historians um, and sociologists who have, you know, were very influential in their own time, but afterwards were regarded as, you know, passé, you know, naff, right? Um, That a lot of these individuals actually, um, we should be going back to, not in the sense of just going back and believing everything they say, but that we have to retain this, right, in our professional memory. And Marshall Hodgson was one of those for me. He has been for a long time. And uh, he was the one who developed this idea of the confessional empires. And what he meant was these, you know, the Christian, the Islamic worlds um, at the western end of of Eurasia. Um, but what I had had sort of come to realize is that actually, if we're looking at the Tang period, we're looking at the Song period, um, uh, this period when the confessional empires are very important in western Eurasia, there actually is a cognate to that happening in eastern Eurasia. Um, it, it isn't... Um, it isn't one of these. Uh, uh, how to say, the state itself uh, does not become subject to the to a religion, but the. The style that is used, there has to be a a religious legitimation for the ruler in the Tang case. uh, The uh, Chakravartan idea is very important and so on. Um, Buddhism, you know, clearly took on all kinds of of political uh, meanings in in the the Tang period. And I found that if you looked at Tang, which right next to it had uh, an overtly confessional state in, in Tibet, um, that there was in fact the transmission of these uh sort of practices right more than beliefs but the practices of confessionalism had were actually being shared over a much over a much wider area than what um uh, uh, uh Hodgson had spoken of now what the, the relevance of this to the Mongol part of the story I thought was that um confessionalism um, had its its role in creating these long-distance uh, communications networks in establishing these kinds of transnational languages, all very important. But at the same time, um, it worked to fragment political power across eurasia so that the fragmentation reached the point where it created a real opportunity uh, for the mongols in, at the end of the of the 12th century and so i you know i thought the confessional Passage was an important one to look at very closely in order to understand um, how um, Eurasia was was kind of um, was vulnerable to, was open to, was receptive to um, the influences that would come with the Mongol conquests.
1: Right. Yeah. And the Mongol conquests arrive in your book uh, in part three. But before we get into them, I I was just wondering if you could um, uh, briefly elucidate on uh, two kind of categories that you introduced to us uh, in this book, the first being Turkic. And what are the dimensions of Turkic? Uh, As I understand, it's a heuristic kind of a uh, tool of the craft for this particular book. And there was another that really struck me, another grouping that you, you form here called the Sartic world. And these are both ones that the Mongols sort of, um, what's a, a word? Like they become part of the Mongol empire, but they're very existing prior to the Mongol empire. And I, could you briefly describe these please? Yes. Um, Turkic, uh,
0: yes, I, i I brought a little bit of art into this and I i I beg the reader right to indulge me and to go along with this because not all of the groups I refer to as Turkic in the book um, actually spoke languages that any linguist would consider to be Turkic um, uh, the as I say the Turkic um, dimension of this was something that kind of grew for me as I was looking beyond the Mongols, the Mongol conquests, and thinking this over over the, you know, as the years were passing by. Um, and uh, I'd always enjoyed reading about um, Turkic history, uh, particularly Peter Golden, people like this. It it um, I don't do research in that area. I don't have any kind of expertise. I just did a lot of reading, and so Turkic means not. Uh, I mean, it includes what we think of as Turkish, right? But um, it also includes all, all the variant languages that are, are, you know, related to but not the same as um, modern Turkish. It includes these. The entire history of these populations that originated basically in Siberia and then migrated ever westward until finally reaching Anatolia. Um, and it's not a single group, right? There are these, um, very distinct, uh, clusters of, of peoples who politically you can put them under federations, but we can also distinguish the languages uh, um, and so on. That that history is continuous, right, from before the common era um, all the way up to the modern era, and that's partly because of this uh, the extreme length of the history of the Ottoman Empire. But when you bring the Ottoman Empire into the story, um, I think then you begin to see all these other ways in which Turkic um, uh, leaders and then also Turkic political ideas had been uh steadily uh, uh infiltrating uh you know this these at the western end of eurasia um uh, long before the mongols ever arrived and so it's not a sudden sort of uh, like an impact from the steppe it's something that was actually a very integral part of the histories of 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 europe and um, the Balkans, the Urals, the, the Black Sea, this whole area, a very integral part of that, you know, for basically the last 17, um, 1800 years. So Turkic, um, in that that sense, I describe it as a role, I think, at one part in the book, that it's a historical role, rather than being some very... Uh, um, tightly specified linguistic or cultural group. Um, This was important to me, particularly in discussing Eastern Eurasia, because there we've got groups like uh, Xiongnu who, you know, this is not resolved. Nobody knows, you know, to what extent you, you should or should not consider the Xiongnu to be Turkic. But they had the features that i was interested in they had an ordo like uh, organization they clearly had a Conal sort of organization at the at the top of the society they were they were horse nomads um, something like this was also very important for being able to include um the ranran and the the tagmak right and um, and that's where you bring Sui and Tang, um, into this whole much, much larger uh, story of the Turkic peoples. And fortunately, I mean, I didn't even realize this until until I did. I mean, that was, I knew at some point... I, I want to be able to link all these things together, but what should I call it? And uh, it just happened that I got to reading about um, Islamic historiography uh, relating to Central Asia, to the to the Turks and so on. And um, there, there was already a tradition of using Turk um, basically in the way that in ancient times Turan was used, right, which was um, – uh, as 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 a role, as the opponent of the uh, agriculturally based civilizations of Iran, actually, but um, this this had been sort of incorporated into Islamic historiography, and so I thought, yes, I, it's it's not just me. There's a lot of other people uh, looking for this key, and so I thought um, I will. Sort of follow their example and on the basis of uh, the authority they've established, see if people would just indulge me about that. Um, Now, the Sartic people, this I really, um, this was not a term that I encountered very frequently um, in my own readings about the, let's say, the Mongol conquests. Um, And it was suggested to me um when I read about this um, monument that's uh, from um, the early um, 13th century, and it's in Mongolia and there there aren't actually a lot of these in that period. and it actually makes a reference to the the, the Sartic Peoples, um, so I knew that this is what the Mongols were calling them. Um, the people being referred to, and and this 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 is a term, as I understand it, that persists in a in a lot of um, modern languages, um, you know, Urdu and and Turkish and so on. And it can sometimes have a very specific meaning, like it can just mean people who who live in Bukhara, right, or something like that. But what I was getting at was this population um, that um, Chingis confronts um, when in his wars against the Horazm Shah of um, people who, yes, they are Muslims, uh, they are settled, but they are they are settled in. Um, the great cities, the trade entrepôts of of Central Asia, and and they are Persian speaking, and so on the one hand, um, they're a very important. There's something he really has to acquire. They're a tool that he needs in order to act out this kind of confrontation he's looking for with the with the Muslim world, but because of their uh, familiarity with Central Asia and all the elements of life there—they're kind of this um, sort of—they're um, they, not transitional, but they're right at this nexus between um, these these two worlds. And so, I think uh, this there's a. It's not a revelation, but I think it, it, it made um, a very strong impression on Chingis and his generation that um, this is something we've we've got to deal with. This Islam, this thing, is something that we really have to begin to understand, learn how to manipulate this. Chinggis himself, I don't think, was ever successful at that, but obviously, you know, um, some of his sons, grandsons, and so on were. Uh, and this was always a big uh, problem, you know, how to reconcile uh, Mongol political traditions and religious traditions with the Islamic world. The the Sarts are kind of the first uh, confrontation that the Mongols have with that. And then, of course, ever after, if you think of, you know, even, let's say, the Mongols in China, um, where... The people we tend to call the Simul, right? The people of the various categories. They, these are actually the Sarts, and uh, they remain this essential population for the facilitation of Mongol conquest and occupation.
1: Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, you—the uh, next question I prepared—you already started to touch on this, and. Um, in your treatment of the mongols i um i quite relished uh if i can say that the the quite deflated um sense around the uh the sort of reputation of Chinggis khan as world conqueror and you put a lot more emphasis on um his successors, his descendants and their um their legacy to the world and what what they did to the world after Chinggis, um but in relation to the rest of your book, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about to what extent do you see um, Chingus and the his descendants, the Toloid empires, as a culmination of uh, this continental Eurasian world and these practices and exchanges, or in what sense do you think the, the Mongol Empire was quite contingent on a lot of factors?
0: Hmm, I do. I do say I think somewhere near the. Beginning of the book that Chinggis um, is a person of interest, but Mehmed the is a person of consequence. Um, I'm not sure I'm quoting myself <laughs> exactly, but um, I think it was it was something like that. Um, the uh, yeah, Chinggis, I y- you know y- when you you read about Mongol history and so on, I mean it, Chinggis this, Chinggis that, everything Chinggis and um, I, you know, Chingus a very formidable person. You know, I I would say certainly step aside if I saw Chingus coming down the street. But um, this this idea that he created an empire and he's that that's not the history. That isn't what actually happened during Chingus's lifetime. Um, so Chingus uh, he's in the book. Um, he does go by kind of quickly. Usually, when I talk about the book, I don't even mention Chingis. The book had just come out, and the the International uh, Association for uh, Mongolian Studies asked me to, to give the, uh, the a keynote speech at their at their meeting. And um, at the end of it, um, I, I remember um, uh, Michael Biran stood up and said, "You didn't mention Chingis Khan," <laughs> which was it was true. I didn't mention Chingis. Um, the empires they're built, I mean, I think you know Uday, for instance, should get a lot of credit for actually having built the empire, which he did. Um, this is kind of a person who's depicted as very colorless, right, in history. Um, he comes before the Toluids. Um, I do think that um, the Toluid this kind of uh, this this movement of power towards the Toluids, who have the two empires that are by far the most populous and the wealthiest, right, in all of the little collection of of Mongolian empires. Um, there There is a kind of culmination there in the sense of the, the exchange, right, the exchanges of knowledge and uh, personnel and uh, the trade relations, which were, they were not initiated i mean that was all this is just all pasted onto this uh trade network that is um you know at the center of of Eurasian integrity um but i think what i was I don't think I said this, and I'm not sure this would be my formal conclusion, but what I was kind of constantly moved by was the contrast with um, the Ottoman Empire and uh, some of the other empires of uh, of um, you know Iran and and that there there was this um, steady, slow, Accumulation of a political style and and knowledge and commercial influence um, that I would say, in the end, you know, probably had more influence certainly over Europe and certainly and probably uh, over um, the Ural's um, Balkans, North Africa than the mongols would ever have have had so the combination is a common i think there's a culmination of a certain kind of exchange that occurred along this trade network um and it's a very short period even though it does achieve a lot i guess partly because of the brevity the the greater significance of the achievement of those two empires probably is still overshadowed by the um, overall influence of the Ottoman Empire.
1: Right. Okay. And that leads into um, your discussions uh, in the uh, the final part of the book, uh, The Forge. Um, now, we briefly touched uh, already on how you believe that the the nomad or the post nomadic world contributed to uh, various intellectual currents of uh, dissent and dissident um i was wondering if you could comment also and you did just touch on it in your answer just now on the influences of this post nomadic uh, post mongol world in the way of shaping what became of what became modern ideas of territory nation and by extension identity in eurasia
0: mm um th- i guess there's a there's a large aspect to that which would be territorial definition and the placement of capitals and as we know these these things were rewritten by the by the Mongol Empires, all four of them, uh, it's basically put these territories on a kind of foundation that looks to us a lot like what the foundations remain today in terms of you know the outline on the map. Um, I think there was also uh, a residual effect of this of these small states the mongols reduced the size of the states when they got to china and, and when they got to um iran and uh probably even when they assumed control over the over the russian cities and strangely the states coming after the mongols did not return To the size of the states beforehand and so they developed this kind of style that remained into the 19th century of of basically small states um, on small tax bases and um, you know it's only when they were confronted in the 19th century by these enormous states with industrialized military uh, from Europe that uh, you see the long term effects of this but that's That's uh, another sort of thing that happened. But uh, thinking not about the map now and not on this very grand level, institutionally, um, these empires all did something very similar, which was um, objectification of identity. Um, And so if you think of the medieval period in which – they, you know, everybody everywhere always has an identity. But in the Middle Ages, the basic sort of criteria of negotiation of identity were generally related to um, religion, class. Uh, gender would be very important. Uh, things, things that we would think of afterwards, like language, right, or a, a broad kind of descent from a group of people instead of some famous ancestor. Tho- those things were not really part of um, medieval identity very much. Now, I do think there were there were antecedents of this earliest among. Turkic groups, and particularly in terms of, you know, sort of being able to narrate a, a group identity. And I think that through these states, a lot of this then became official historiography and had an impact on the way um, uh, people began to um, work out this kind of of nation-state uh, nation state, uh, uh uh, obsession, all right, in the, in 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 the modern period, um, but objectification of identity originally had to do with things that I, I think had disparate origins. One was in the Islamic world, um, this uh, kind of uh, difference that you had to be able to mark and uh, to administer between Muslims and um, everybody else. So you had to be able to differentiate who are the people of the book, um, who are pagans. Uh, they all have to be treated differently. They have to be registered uh, they're going to be taxed differently if they show up in court. There's this is all going to go differently for them, depending on uh, the ways in which these identities uh, have been recorded. Um, The second and the disparate uh, origin, I think, that has to do with Central Asia and this this Turkic tradition of uh, naming captive populations and keeping records of that, because they're going to be gifted to uh, followers, so that the history of some groups. Um, uh, being passed around from one lord to another, and and being put to work in the mining or in the fields, or being enlisted in the armies, all of these things, you know, worked out as a way of categorizing, objectifying these identities that are basically cultural in origin. So they do have to do with the language that people are speaking and um, the place where they were, uh, their place of origin. Right. Um, so. Uh, I think when those things come together, um, which they do very powerfully for the Ottomans um, and for the Ilkhan's, um, it begins to establish a kind of state enterprise in um, this ascription of identity and uh, the objectification of identity. Now, the last sort of element of this that I thought was very important is these processes of vernacularization that are marked uh, both in societies that came to be dominated by Turkic-originated governments and also in societies that came to be dominated by Mongol-originated governments. That is partly because of taste and partly because of um, the political importance of uh, uh, the certain groups uh, in, in the society. There would be An encouragement, and in some cases a coercion, in these states to move away from uh, formal uh, hierarchical uh, religion towards folk religion, to move away from uh, very rarefied elite arts, right in in poetry, theater, painting, towards these more sort of um, popularly oriented forms, and. I think the, the cumulative effect is to uh, move this kind of gravity of definition uh, towards the greater part of the population and the rulers' identification with that and the promotion of uh, the local language the 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 vernacular language as a standard language that will be institutionalized through education and printing and so on and so forth. Those we think of those processes as being part of modernization in Europe, uh, which I think they were, but uh, they occur earlier. um, I think. In some cases, much earlier. In other societies of Eurasia that had this kind of this post-nomadic political history.
1: Right, and generally on the subject of this this sort of uh, the presence of a lot of labels and, and identities within Central Asia, I wanted to just give a general comment and question. Uh, just about the sheer amount of these labels and names uh, in this book. like uh, the, I mean, the, the geographical scope and the temporal scope of this kind of necessitates this. You cover so many different groups in different parts of the world. I wanted to ask in the process of writing this book uh, confronted with this sheer volume of uh, sometimes these very kind of complicated groups of complicated relationships to each other and their own individual chronologies. um, were there discussions for you wrote but decided to omit or not include for the sake of uh, brevity or for the sake of the argument were there were there people that you didn't get to write about that that you kind of uh, maybe were also part of that story uh,
0: yes I, I definitely i mean i i did have to um, make a decision about you know, who's going to be in and who's going to be out. Um, I don't write about Arabs. Um, I don't write about South Asians who are not immigrants from, Central Asia, Um, uh, those are very, very important groups uh, that are left out. I don't write about peoples um, who are actually of great interest to me who live north of the temperate zone, Um, not unless they came down (laughs) into this temperate zone. It's not that the temperate zone is, you know, again, a line, right, that you're just drawing up, but you understand what I mean. There's there's the uh, agricultural societies with dense populations are actually sort of, the, the bedrock theme of the, of the book so if if the some group wasn't involved with that. I, I, I did have to leave them out. Um, and even within, I, there are still a lot of names left, but I had to simplify um, a lot of things. That was one of the functions of something you asked about before, using the terms Turkic and Sart and so on. I mean, those are partly synthetic in order to stand in for a whole lot of names that don't affect the overall story and would be hard for
1: readers to remember. Right, yeah. I wanted to just open this up now and ask you a question, a a broader, general question about the craft of a global historian like yourself. Um, uh, I'm familiar with your other work, and I I do particularly like your 2008 uh, rather slim volume, uh, What is Global History?, that you published through uh, Polity Press. In one part, you talked about the challenges of writing global history, uh, and and I quote: uh, You say that there is nowhere to go and there's no method to use for researching global history since there's no context for the generation of evidence. And um, you go on to talk about other challenges as well. Uh, you wrote this book about uh, well over ten years ago now. Has your understanding of the craft of the global historian changed through completing uh, this book, Hammer and Anvil?
0: Hmm, I. I don't think it has changed because in fact, I was sort of um, acting out right this, this formula that I had mentioned previously, which is uh, there's very little of this book, very, very little that's based on my own research. I basically read what other people had written and I read what other people had written about what the first people had written because I don't, you know, once I get outside my lane, I, I don't actually have an ability to make judgments about the the, the persuasiveness of some of these arguments. I, I, on my own, you know, I can't. So I have to read what those other people have read, read about it. And so this is the point that I think I was making. And I, I have actually subsequently, I, I think, written a couple shorter essays about how global history is not actually history in the, the which doesn't mean it isn't a good thing it just means i mean in history what we do is we train people to generate original knowledge which is always intensely local in its context and they find this knowledge in the archives or in you know other documents or through uh you know learning about uh archaeological findings they they are producing this knowledge they are working out their the criteria of credibility significance um and learning how to analyze it and those are the basic skills of historians and i think you know contrary to the way my colleagues sometimes think about this, these are more important today than ever before because it's really a science of knowledge. And nowadays, when we're having such a kind of, you know, crisis of confidence about knowledge, the training of historians is actually a a tremendous um, asset for us here. But, uh, yeah, when you come to do global history... Well, there isn't any place you can go and research global history because it's by definition the generation of original knowledge is, is it has to be local. Um, uh, and so global is just reading what other people have written. You might work in a comparative style, right, where you're picking out two places and you want to. Sort of put them together for some reason, or you might be working in a more thematic sort of style, or you might work in this kind of um, integrated narrative style. Um, but either, it, it, no matter what it is, you're not using those skills that historians are primarily trained to use. But you are acquiring the skills that are central to the work of, let's say, sociologists. And so I think, um, most, uh, uh, speak, um, most concretely speaking, um, what we call global history is really um historical sociology, which I think is a very credible and important field. Um, I'm not sure why historians want to claim that they, they themselves, without any help from anybody else, are doing global history, um, because it really in terms terms of what we're trained to do in terms of the kinds of critical review that we do of our own work among historians global history doesn't resemble us at all it's 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 it is uh um historical sociology and it needs those kinds of skills and so those have to be acquired at some point or other
1: well thank you for that pamela we've we've taken up a lot of your time um just as an, a closing question, I was wondering, could you tell us uh, what you're currently working on and what future projects are gestating or on the horizon?
0: Well, I am fortunately in the, the, the last stages of revising a book on the history of the Qing Empire for uh, Cambridge University Press. And um, I have a lot of ideas for future projects, but among them will be a book that is a sequel to um, Hammer and Anvil, uh, which will be about the development of um, nationalist ideologies and uh, state-sponsored sort of identity processes in the modern period.
1: Right, excellent. Well, uh, I look forward to both of those projects um, coming out in the future. Uh, Once again, um, listeners, you've been listening uh, to an interview with Pamela Carl-Crossley We're talking about hammer and anvil, nomad rulers at the forge of the modern world. Thank you very much, Pamela.
0: Such a pleasure to talk to you, Lance.